As we discussed, it's a mitzvah saseh, to work on one's midos, to improve one's character traits in general, and the linchpin to all midos is humility. Humility is the center, humility is the pivot, humility is the single midah that will impact every other character trait that a person has, and this series is focused on acquiring humility. In previous sessions, we also focused on the fact that the nature of man's heart is to lazuch ulisnase. Ms. Sham explains that the nature of man's heart is to become proud and overbearing. In the last session, we explained the reason for that is because Hashem created us for greatness. Within me is an Hashemah that was created for eternity, to do great things, to accomplish worlds, to change myself, change the people I live in amongst, change the world itself. And that neshama is a tremendously demanding taskmaster. It demands that I grow, it demands that I accomplish, and man is never content. Man always seeks more, needs more, and that voice should drive me to grow, to accomplish, to become the great human being I was destined to be. However, not always do we allow the voice to focus us properly, and oftentimes we subvert it, and there's one or two choices. When a person subverts that voice, either he answers the voice by saying, what do you mean I'm not great? I am great. You know how great I am? I'm so great. I'm mighty. I'm powerful. I'm important. And he inflates. He becomes a Balgaiva. He becomes pompous. Well, the opposite. He answers that voice that demands that he be great by saying, you're right. I'm not great. I'm nobody. I'm nothing. And he self-deflates. He becomes damaged self-image. But one or two other responses that typically happen to that voice, both are incorrect. The right attitude should be Joe the crane operator. Hashem gifted me. Hashem put me in this mighty crane. This crane is accomplished. This crane can do so many things. I'm a little guy inside. That demand to be great should be surface and should focus me towards doing really great things, eternally great things, learning, davening, growing, working on my midos, etc. But finding that balance is very, very difficult. This session we're going to focus a little bit more on actually acquiring humility how one better understands how the media functions, and tactically, how do I actually deflate, how do I actually acquire this coveted trait called humility. And to begin, let's start with the Gemara in the Durham. The Gemara explains to us a Nazir has a particular mission. A Nazir is a person who separates from the world. He leaves some of the mundane activities. He doesn't eat grapes. He doesn't, he's not metamala mesim. He doesn't defile himself. And for a period of time, he remains separate from the world, <clears throat> he remains elevated, and he lives in this lofty state. When he's done his time period of Naziris, he brings a carbon, he cuts his hair, and he goes back to living a normal lifetime. However, if during the time period of being a Nazir, he becomes Tameh, then his Naziris begins anew. So the standard time period for Naziris is 30 days. If during that 30-day time period he touches a dead body, or finds himself in the oil of a mace, etc. <clears throat> he then has to re-begin his Nazir's time period. He brings an Oshim Nazir, a particular type of carbon, and he begins anew. The Gemara tells us that Rabbi Shimon Tzadik never ate from an Oshim Nazir tummy. Why? Because he was afraid the Nazir had tremendous drive when he made his Ned Nazir's. He made a 30-day vow or a year vow, whatever the time may be, and he had tremendous dedication, tremendous devotion, and he was ready to carry it out. But then, 
in the midst of that time period, he became Tomei, and he has to begin anew. Maybe when he begins anew, he has charata, and he doesn't really want to keep the same, with the same energy, with the same zeal, and therefore it might be that that Oshem was not really Kodesh, was not proper, and Rabbi Shimon Tzaddik would never eat from an Osher Naz, Nazim Tamei. He would never eat from this Oshem except for one time. Gemara tells us that one time there was a Nazir who came from the south, explains Rabbi Shimon, Re'itzi I saw he was very, very attractive, beautiful eyes, Tovrei, beautiful countenance, V'katsos of Sedurus, he had long flowing locks. Amartilo, I said to him, B'ni, my son, why did you want to make a Ned and Naziris? When you make a Ned and Naziris, when you finish, you're going to have to cut those beautiful locks. Why did you do this? Amali said to me, I was a shepherd for my father. One day I went to the well to fill up the water, and I looked into the clear water, and I saw my image. My yates got a hold of me, and I got a hold of I felt a sense of pride. I felt a sense of arrogance, and I realized I was in danger. Amarti, I said, Russia, wicked one. Why are you becoming arrogant in a world that's not yours? In a body that's going to end up being eaten by the worms. The avoda is, I'm going to shave you. At that point, I made a ned in Aziris. I decide I'm going to be a Nazir. Says Rabbi Shimon at Tzadik, at that moment, Nashakti, I kissed him on his forehead, and I said, B'ni, my son, Kamocha Yirbu Nozre Naziris Bishral, like you, there should be many, many more people make Nedda Naziris, and from that, Oshom Rabbi Shimon at Tzadik ate. Now, this is a very interesting Gemara, but if we focus on it, I think we'll be able to see a lot more depth than meets the surface eye. Marshall explains to us, number one, that this young man was not a simple young man. He was a tremendous tamachacham, and every word that he expressed explained greatness and great wisdom. And when Shimon HaTzadik saw this, he was incredibly moved by the piety of this young man and the wisdom that he explained. So let's analyze carefully what this young man said, and let's see if we can learn something from it. Again, this young man looks in the water, sees his reflection, sees that he's quite attractive, and then he says, Russia, wicked one, why are you becoming arrogant in a world that's not yours? Now, that doesn't sound very wise, meaning to say, what difference does it make who owns the world, Hashem's world, your world? Either way, I'm drop-dead gorgeous. Look, I'm beautiful. I have long flowing hair, beautiful face. I'm beautiful. What does he mean, <coughs> wicked one, why are you being misguided? Why are you feeling arrogance in a world that's not yours? Why is that relevant? It may not be my world, but Hashem made me beautiful, and I am gorgeous. Look at this beautiful countenance. But let's look at the second statement that he says. In a body that's going to be filled with worms eaten in the ground. Now what relevance does that have? Right now I'm gorgeous. I'm young. I'm healthy. And I am beautiful. Yes, I'm going to be old. Yes, one day I'll be decrepit. But right now, I'm gorgeous. And I believe if we study carefully what this young man said, he defined well the antidotes to arrogance. Number one, Russia, why are you becoming arrogant in a world that's not yours? 
and number two, in a body that's going to be eaten by the worms. Again, I believe when we analyze this carefully, we'll see tremendous understanding in this. And to do that, let's better understand this midah called humility. Masil Sharm explains to us the definition of anava is a person should not be machshev himself. A person should not feel chashev. A person should not feel important. And he explains this is the opposite of gaiva. Arrogance and humility are opposites of the very same coin. And when you understand one, you understand the other. And when you work on one, you work on the other. But the Mesilasham goes on to uh, explain to us the way to acquire humility is a person should be misboning, should contemplate, and it should come truthful to him. Praise and honor are not due to me, surely not for me to lord it over anyone else. This simple understanding that I am not worthy of praise, I'm not worthy of honor, and surely I'm not above anyone else is the definition of humility. It's an internal state, it's a state of feeling, I'm not chashev, I'm not important, and I'm surely not above anyone else. And the corollary is arrogance. Arrogance is the exact opposite of that. The definition of arrogance is I'm chashev, I'm important, I'm weighty, I'm mighty, I'm significant, I'm someone to be reckoned with. And in Parakir al Sham explains to us that that is exactly the definition of arrogance, but then he says something very, very telling. He says, any talent, any attribute that a person realizes he may have, he's immediately in danger, he's immediately in danger of falling into this pit of arrogance. Any talent, any attribute, any myla that I recognize that I have, I'm immediately in danger of falling into the pit of arrogance. But please note what he says. I'm immediately in danger, but that doesn't mean I'm arrogant yet. So for instance, let's assume I have wisdom, intelligence, skill, charisma, maybe I'm clever, I'm capable, talented, whatever my skill set, whatever talent I may have, that doesn't mean I'm arrogant. I'm in danger of becoming arrogant, but I'm not yet arrogant. And I believe when we study the pathology, the disease state, we'll see that there are three stages to the state called arrogance. So let's take it at stage one. Let's imagine for a minute that I have a beautiful voice. If I have a beautiful voice, and I know it, and I recognize it, I'm in danger of becoming arrogant, but I'm not necessarily arrogant at all. At that moment, I and my voice are separate entities. I was given this quality, granted this gift, I recognize Hashem gave it to me. I and the talent are separate. At that moment, I am not arrogant. At that moment, I'm not even anything other than just a regular person. There's no arrogance there whatsoever. But if we study the way a person becomes arrogant, we'll see there's a very interesting process that happens. And let's do it with a simple example. Let's deal with money. So let's imagine for a minute that I'm poor, very poor. Year after year, I barely eke out a living, barely am able to pay my bills, and life goes on that way. One day, I get a letter in the mail from a lawyer that I have a distant relative in Utah. I didn't even know he ha- I had him. <clears throat> the lawyer asked me to come to the office. I go down to the office, and the lawyer says to me, I want you to know your distant relative died, and you are the only living heir. I'm sorry to hear that he died. Uh, the lawyer said, well, there's some good news to this also. You are the only living heir, and he had an estate worth $100 million. Whoa! 
$100 million. Wow. Now, at that moment, I and the money are separate. I'm a regular guy, the same guy I was yesterday, the same guy I was the year before. I happen to have a lot of money. I and the money are separate. There's no arrogance there. I'm the same guy I used to be. I think the same way. I act the same way. There's no gaiva at all at stage one. But watch what happens. People start acting a little bit differently to me. They treat me with more respect. They ask my opinion about many different subjects. And all of a sudden, I start feeling a little bit different. You know, I'm not quite the man I used to be. I'm now a little bit different than you. I'm a little bit, uh, I won't say better, but I'm, I'm a rich man. I mean, come on, you got to understand. I'm a rich guy. I, I, I'm a rich person. People who are rich don't do things like the average kind of guy. I'm, I'm not going to drive the same car as you. I'm not, certainly not going to live in the same kind of house as you. I won't dress the same way because I'm a rich man. That's stage two, where I and the attribute mold together. You see, in stage one, I'm a regular guy who has money. I and the attribute are separate. There's no arrogance there. Stage two is where I become the rich guy. And when it becomes a definition of me, now all of a sudden I have changed. I act differently. I think differently. I am a different person. I am a great singer. I have a great voice. I'm no longer separate from the attribute. I identify with it. It becomes me. And now I am deeply in the, on the road to becoming arrogant. Because you see, I no longer do things the way that I used to. I no longer think the way I used to. And to be honest with you, I'm just different than you. I mean, I don't know how to say this politely, but come on, you know, we're in different categories, different statuses. I'm just a little bit above you. You know, that's just the way it is. But then things move all along to stage three. Let's imagine I have a good voice, a beautiful voice, and people start flocking to the stage, and people start paying me all kinds of money, and, and people start treating me with a tremendous amount of honor. I come to stage three where I have a beautiful voice. Do <laughs> you know who I am? I have a great voice. That's just one of my many things that I have, and one of my many talents, but I am the singer. I have the great voice. If you'd like to see this in clear operation, sports stars are classic examples of this. An athlete is a person gifted with physical capacity. Quick, strong, maybe good eye-hand coordination, but rare it is that the athlete is also a Rhodes Scholar. And most football players who go to college don't make it to the dean's list. Let me give you one example. I remember back in the day, Dennis Rodman was a tremendous basketball player, and he was very, very good, very talented. And at a sport, at a conference, press conference, he gets up and says, we're going to win the next game, period, P-E-R-O-D. Now, the fellow didn't even realize that he didn't know how to spell the word period. But here's the point. Would you ask him investment advice? Would you ask him for his opinion about the world situation? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who was one of the great basketball players of the 70s, used to say the following line, I'm grateful to the league for what it gave to me. He's grateful to the league? He is anyone and anything only because of the league. But you see, I am great. I am the great Dennis Rodman. I am the great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. I am great. You see, at stage one, I and the attribute are totally separate. 
I'm a regular guy who happens to have a lot of money. I'm a regular guy who plays basketball very well. I'm a regular guy who has a great voice. There's no arrogance. Stage two is where I and the attribute meld. I'm the rich guy. I'm the great ball player. I have a phenomenal voice. Stage three is where it becomes totally I. I am so great that I don't even need the attribute. It's just me. It's just one of the many things that I have, but it's I who am truly great. A classic example of this is Muhammad Ali. As a little boy, I was a fan of Muhammad Ali, the boxer, and he was very talented and very skilled and a great showman. And I remember Muhammad Ali once bragging, boxing, boxing weren't nothing. Boxing was just a way of introducing Muhammad Ali to the world and the world to Muhammad Ali. Now, my friends, Muhammad Ali took an IQ test at the age of 13, and he rated a 78. Just to put that into focus, genius is 140, borderline mentally retarded is about 80. He rated a 78. Boxing weren't nothing, just a way to introduce Muhammad Ali to the world. If it weren't for boxing, he'd be cleaning bathrooms in McDonald's. But you see, I am the great. I am the great Muhammad Ali. I'm so great that I don't even need boxing. It's me. One of the great things I do is this. And that's stage three of arrogance, where the talent, the capacity isn't even relevant. Again, it starts where I and the talent are separate. Then it becomes I am the rich guy. I am the great singer. And then it becomes I am great. It's not even because I'm a great singer. And not even because I'm a great basketball player. I am great. And now I'm in full-fledged arrogance. I am in the bombastic, pompous state. And now I am the problem. And I believe that's exactly the answer to the Nazir. And do you know what he meant when he said, Russia, why are you becoming arrogant in a world that's not yours? Because that is the solution to all arrogance. To recognize that I didn't create myself. I didn't make this body. I didn't make this voice. I didn't make this mind. I don't know how to weave the hundred billion neurons of the brain. When he looked in the water and he saw his reflection and he saw a beautiful person, he took credit for it. I'm gorgeous. And he recognized the arrogance. I'm not gorgeous. God gifted me with a beautiful face. God gifted me with beautiful long locks. That's a gift from Hashem to me. And as long as I don't take credit for it, as long as I don't identify it with it, I'm protected and I'm not arrogant. The minute it's I'm a gorgeous person, the minute that I'm the great singer, I and the attribute become one, I take credit for God's gifts, and I'm in danger of arrogance. And that is the first tactic in solving any sort of sense of arrogance, to recognize that it's not my gift. It was given to me. On talent on loan from God, I didn't make the face, I didn't make the money, I didn't make the hands, the legs, the arms. It's all a gift from Hashem. And when you recognize that, you stay in stage one where I and the attribute are secondary. I and the attribute are separate. We're not one, we're not molded. For instance, if I'm wearing a jacket and I look in, I see the name Ralph Lauren, I don't think of myself as, I'm, I'm, hi, I'm Ralph Lauren. That's the, the name on the jacket that I'm wearing. My body is something that was gifted to me, and any talent, any abilities were all gifts from Hashem. But they don't define me. I'm not Ralph Lauren. And I'll give you a mushal to this that I once found very interesting. 
I was once dominating for the Omer Chakras on Shabbos, and we say Shema Yisrael, the Chazan says it, and I, was, I closed my eyes and I concentrated on the words, and then after I finished, I started walking towards the Tzibur, and my eyes were sort of half open, half closed, looking down. I looked up and I saw everyone was coming over to me. Why are they treating me with such covet? Why, why are they treating me with such honor? They're not treating me with honor. It's because I'm carrying a Sefer Torah. When I recognize that anything that I have is a gift from Hashem, let's assume I'm very learned. Let's assume my name really is Rav Chaim Kanievsky. And I know Kola Torah Kula. Oh, <laughs> I'm Chashev, right? Well, did I write the Torah? Did I make my brain? <clears throat> what I'm credited for is one thing. The work that I did, the accomplishments that I did, Arrogance comes in when I and the attribute become one. I take credit for the attribute. I take credit for the talent, and that is arrogance. As long as I and the attribute remain separate, there's no arrogance there. And as a matter of fact, the Masil Sharm in Perikhav Bayes explains to us that if a person really had clarity of thought, the more talented they would be, the more humble they would be. See, if I recognize that I did not create myself, I didn't make my arms, my legs, my head, my chest, and I certainly didn't write the Torah. The more talented I am, the more I recognize how much Hashem has gifted me with. I'm but a poor person who accepts gifts with tremendous appreciation. Anything that I have, anything that I've ever done is a gift from Hashem. And the more talented, the greater my capacities, the more humble I am, because the more I recognize how much I owe my Creator, but you see, it's because I don't take credit for the attribute. I'm brilliant. Do you know how smart I am? Oh, sir, do you know how to create a brain? <clears throat> do you know how to create the neural pathways? Are you aware of how to connect that to the rest of the central nervous system? I didn't make the brain. If I was gifted with a brilliant mind, and again, assuming I really am very, very intelligent, I recognize that that's a gift from Hashem. And the greater the gift the more I have a sense of appreciation, the smaller I am, because I am but Joe the crane operator. I'm the little guy inside. The crane might be mighty. The crane can lift heavy loads. It's a brilliant brain. But I didn't make the brain. I'm the little guy inside, gifted with this opportunity. And again, the danger is that the nature of man is lazuch ulisnase. But the reason why it is, is because my neshama demands greatness. My neshama demands growing and accomplishing, and there's an ever sense of discontentment within man. And it's very easy to fall into this pit of gaiva, because there's a voice inside that says, why aren't you growing, why aren't you accomplishing, why aren't you great? I am great, look how smart I am, look how intelligent, look how much money I have, look how capable, look how talented. And what I do inevitably is take credit for Hashem's work. If I'm able to remain separate, if I'm able to remember I'm but the poor person receiving the present. There's no arrogance there, and that sense of wanting to grow has to be focused and has to be directed towards real growth, learning, dominating, growing, work on midos, etc. Then I am a person who's growing properly. But again, it's a very dangerous situation. But again, it's never the talent that's the danger. It's the attitude that a person has. As long as I remember that it's talent alone from God, I'm safe. But... There's another statement that the Nazar made that I think we need to analyze. He says, arrogant one, how could you be so wicked in a body that's going to be eaten by the worms? And the question is, so what? That's later on. Right now, I'm young. 
Right now I'm gorgeous. And I know I look in the mirror and I see a long locks, a handsome face. How does the fact that later on I'm going to be eaten by the worms destroy my sense of arrogance now? And to understand that, let's focus on an interesting phenomenon in the human being. If you watch a baby, and the baby's two months old, three months old, four months old, you'll find something very, very interesting. If you hold a toy in front of the baby, you'll catch the baby's eye. You move it around, and the baby sees it, the baby will track it. And if you take that object and then put it behind your back, oftentimes the baby won't even ask for it again. Why? Because the object is no longer in existence. Now, sometimes the baby will actually cry because that object is no longer in existence. But it's rare that the child will actually look for the object. And if the child at that age is playing with a toy and the toy drops, oftentimes the baby won't even search for the object because it's no longer in existence. If you play peekaboo with a baby, you'll see the same sort of thing. When you disappear from the baby's sight, you're no longer in existence. When you reappear, suddenly you come back into existence. Around eight, nine months of age, the baby perceives things differently and reaches a stage of object permanence. Object permanence is a state of abstraction where the infant recognizes that just because it doesn't see the object doesn't mean the object doesn't exist. The rattle may be out of its sight, but the rattle still exists. Object permanence is when the infant begins to extrapolate and understand that even if it doesn't see the object, the object still exists. Now, that's an interesting thing about the immature mind, but we human beings also suffer from something similar to it. We have this sense of permanence, but not of object permanence, but that the current state will last forever. I'm young, I'm healthy, I'm well. And there's this sort of sense that the current state will last forever. Now, intellectually, I can know that it won't, but it doesn't affect my emotional realm. And in my operating mode, the way I think is, the current condition will last forever. Let me give you a very good example. Let's go back to Muhammad Ali, my boyhood icon. I used to very much enjoy watching him. So there he is, the best in the face. And he would tell the world, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest boxer in the world. I'm the greatest boxer the world has ever known. And he was quite a bragger quite a show-off. Now, if you were to take Muhammad Ali from that age, uh, he was quite good, quite talented, and he probably could beat anybody in the ring. But here's an interesting observation. Let's fast forward 30 years from that moment. 30 years forward from the moment when he was on the top of the world. At that point, when I was in my mid-40s, I'd like to share with you that very likely, if I were to get in the ring with Muhammad Ali, I could toy with him. I could probably destroy him. Why? Because some 30 years after Muhammad Ali was world champion, unfortunately began suffering from Parkinson's disease. And at a certain point, he could, could not hold up his hands. The great mighty, the world's greatest fighter, the best of the best, could not pick his hands up to defend himself. Now, why is that relevant? Because imagine that Muhammad Ali, 30 years earlier, could see the future and recognize that the great he, the bragging and boasting best in the world, is going to be in a state where he cannot hold his hands up. Could he be arrogant? No. You see, arrogance is delusional. Arrogance is based on this feeling that the current state will last forever. Well, I got news for you, it won't. 
I may be young, healthy, and well now, but that state is going to pass. And Masul Sharma explains to us that this is a second tactic for solving any arrogance, to understand that any situation in life, whatever it is, is going to pass. The wealthy man very likely is going to be poor. And the ruler very likely is going to lose his power and position. The guy who's on top of the world is going to lose it, and all of us are going to get old one day. It's not that the current situation probably will change. It will change, and I don't control it. Right now, I may be the finest musician in North America. My fingers are incredibly dexterous, and but they will get older and infirmed, and it won't be long before no one's going to want to hear me, and no one's going to be mesmerized by my but, but I'm rich. I got money. And how many times do you read about wealthy people who lose their fortunes? If I recognize that anything that I take honor in now, anything that I say is a definition of me, will leave me, I'm able to separate from it. You see, the first tactic in working on arrogance is to understand it's a gift from Hashem. The second tactic is to realize it's going to leave me. It's not just a gift, it's a temporary gift. And I'd like to share with you something that it's not likely going to leave you. It absolutely, positively, 100% will leave you. Any talent, any ability, any capacity, guaranteed will leave you. Why? Because that's just the way of the world. Young people get old, and then they die. Healthy people get old, get sick, and then they die. But it happens to everyone. Not a human being alive remains who they were forever. Great voices tend to fade, great beauty tends to lessen, but it doesn't matter because we all end up leaving this earth. And one of the greatest Musr exercises to work on arrogance and many other midas as well is to go to an old age home. Watch an 85-year-old man with a walker where each step is more difficult than the one before it. Watch a man who had a stroke, who can't even somehow navigate the spoon to his mouth and say these words, There but for the grace of God go I. I the mighty me, I the healthy young me. It is a bracha, but most likely I'm going to end up there. Hopefully, I'll live long enough to be in that state. Hopefully, I'll live long enough to be an old man. But old men are not powerful and mighty, young and healthy. Old men are old men. And when I understand that, no matter what, eventually I'm going to leave this earth, Parach Tifrach Mimeno Agaiva, the arrogance leaves. The first tactic in working on arrogance is understanding it's a gift. And the second tactic is makes it so much easier, understanding that that gift will leave me. It's temporary. My money, my health, my wealth, my cleverness, my intelligence, whatever it is, is temporarily a gift from Hashem, but it doesn't define me. It's not me, it's something given to me for a little while, but don't go sensing, I'm the rich guy, I'm the great singer, I'm the talented, powerful, charismatic person. I was gifted with this for a short amount of time. And if one very effective Musr exercise is going to an old age home, I have another one that you could do all the time that's a lot easier. Take a picture. Take a picture of yourself when you were a child and look at that picture. And I want you to look at that picture and say, I and that person who is in that picture. I'm the same person. I was once a young boy. 
<clears throat> then I was bar mitzvah. Then I got married. Then I had my first child. Then my second child. Eventually, those children got married. I had my first grandchild. And I am the same person as that little boy in the picture. I used to carry a picture around in my wallet for many years of me as a little boy to recognize that single reality that I, as every other human being on the planet, am on a continuum. I am a younger person, middle-aged person, older person, but all of us go through that arc. There's no excusing it, no getting out of it. Hopefully, I'll make it to old age, but that's the simple reality. And that is the answer to the second question of the Nazir. Why did the Nazir say, arrogant one? How are you becoming arrogant in a body that's going to be eaten by the worms? Because arrogance is delusional. If I would recognize that, yes, I was gifted with great beauty, but this great beauty will leave me. This body that I currently occupy will be in the ground, eaten by worms. What's arrogant? I can't be arrogant. Right now I'm drop-dead gorgeous, very nice. That's a gift given to me. I temporarily occupy the state. But I can't define myself that way. I can't identify as a beautiful person because it's a state that's going to leave me. It's a temporary state, a temporary gift. In a little while, my body's going to be in the ground, eaten by the worms. And that is the second solution to arrogance, recognizing that any gift that I have will leave me in a certain amount of time. And when I recognize that, it's very, very simple to be humble. The great danger of arrogance is when I identify with the trait. Again, if I have $100 million, I'm not arrogant. I and the money are separate. It's when I become the rich guy. And not just I become the rich guy, I am the rich guy. And that's when I'm in full-blown arrogance. But if I recognize two simple understandings, number one, it's all a gift. The money, the health, the well-being, the talent, whatever it is, it's true. Any talent that I have, I'm in danger of becoming arrogant. But when I recognize that it could so easily leave me, more than that, it's a gift. Those two concepts, it's a gift from Hashem, and it could so easily leave me, prevents me from any arrogance. And I'd like to share with you one more concept that the Orcha Siddiquim explains to us. He says, one of the basic fundamental understandings of a human being is that I am a prisoner in this world. I have very little control. People get sick, people get headaches, people get toothaches, people get stomach aches. People go through many, many situations in this world. And when I go to the dentist and I'm in excruciating pain, there is not much I'm going to be able to do about it. Oh, I could try and I could take medicine, but I have no control over my destiny. I once heard a woman say, I don't let myself get sick. Now, it's very good to watch your health, exercise properly, eat right, keep your stress levels down, but you are not in control. Whether I'm healthy or well, sick or frail, is not up to me. I hope, Hashem, Hashem will grant me many years of health and well-being. I'll do my eshtadlis, but I don't control it. And when I recognize that I am but a prisoner in this world, I recognize that simple reality. This chazal is very, very eye-opening. And why did Rabbi Shimon, why was he so moved by this nazir? Because this nazir exhibited great piety and great wisdom. He saw the beautiful face looking back in his, in, from the water, and he said, Russia, wicked one, why are you arrogant in a world that's not yours? Because arrogance by definition means taking credit for the attribute. 
Knowing I have a great talent doesn't mean I'm arrogant. Knowing I have a lot of money doesn't mean I'm arrogant. Knowing that I sing well, I'm very handsome, doesn't mean I'm arrogant. As long as I and the attribute remain separate, there's no arrogance there. It's when I begin taking credit for the attribute, where I mold into the attribute. When I become the rich man, I am the great singer. I'm gorgeous. I'm just so handsome. I'm just so charismatic. I'm just so clever. I become the attribute. I begin taking credit for Hashem's world. Eventually get to the point where <clears throat> boxing were nothing. Boxing was just a way to wor- introduce the world to Muhammad Ali and Muhammad Ali to the world. It's I who am so great. I don't even need the attribute. Then I'm in the full flings of arrogance. The first solution is to recognize one simple understanding. I have a gift given to me by Hashem. Talent unknown from God. But the second concept is to understand that that gift will leave me. Only a matter of time, only a question of how long, but it's a gift granted to me for a temporary amount of time. And when I understand that, there's no arrogance. But there's one more step to learn from this Gemara, and I think it might be even more compelling. What did this wise Nazir do? He looks in the water, sees the beauty of his image, feels a sense of arrogance, and he points a finger and says, Russia, wicked one, and why are you being arrogant in the world? That's not yours. Notice, please, what he does. He talks to himself out loud. Self-talk. And this is one of the most incredibly important elements of success in any endeavor in life, certainly in changing any media. You have to talk to yourself, preferably out loud. Make sure no one's around, make sure people don't hear. But if you can't talk out loud, at least in your head, you have to control the chatter in your brain. You see, all arrogance starts with chatter in the brain. (laughs) You know how smart I am? (laughs) You know how intelligent? You know how rich I am? You know how important I am? You know how clever I am? It's always thoughts in the brain. And the only way to stop arrogance and to gain humility is to gain control of the thoughts. Well, how do you stop the chatter? The first thing is self-talk. You talk to yourself. Okay, Mr. Mighty, weighty, superior person, how smart are you? How great are you? And I have another question to ask you. Oh, great, mighty one, did you create this body? Are you the creator of the heavens and the earth? Are you the one who made yourself? Oh, no, you didn't. Oh, I see. So this talent, is this you? No, it's a gift. Oh, and another question to ask you, Mr. Mighty, weighty, superior person, uh, how long do you intend to keep these gifts for? 20 years, 30 years, but eventually they'll leave you, and either way, eventually you're going to be in the ground. That self-talk is the cure to all midos, and especially to arrogance, because arrogance means I'm taking credit for Hashem's gifts. I'm pretending they'll be forever. I have object permanence. I'll be forever gorgeous, forever young, forever healthy, forever rich. And I have to deflate that self-talk. I have to talk to myself in the exact opposite way. I have to say to myself the exact opposite. How long are you going to be here for? And did you make yourself? These are just gifts from Hashem. And you have to train yourself to talk to yourself again and again. And Rabbeinu Machai tells us that the tzaddik is the one who's constantly talking to himself in a very humbling manner. Not destroying himself. Not saying he's worthless. But recognizing one simple understanding. These gifts are given to me by Hashem. These gifts are granted to me for a temporary time. And when you talk and you talk, eventually it settles in. The sense of arrogance is natural to a person because I need to be great. That's how Hashem made us. 
The problem is I take credit for the attributes of Hashem, and self-talk is ultimately the solution. And I'd like to finish with one last observation. Pet rocks were a fad that began in 1975. It was a fellow, Gary Dahl, who was actually an advertising person, and one night he was in a bar drinking with his buddies, and uh, the conversation turned to pets. Now, Gary was a pretty creative fellow, and he said something like, you know, dogs, cats, birds, eh, they're all a pain in the neck. They're messy, they misbehave, and they cost too much money. Me, I decided to keep a pet rock. That's my pet. And he sort of started going off and explaining uh, what he does, and soon his friends got in on the joke. And next day, Dahl went home, and he wrote uh, the Pet Rock Training Manual. And that's what he did. He wrote a manual, step-by-step guide to having a, a happy relationship with your pet, um, he even included instructions, how to train your pet to roll over and play dead, how to house train it. You know, he'd say, put it on old newspapers, the rock will never know what the paper is for, and it required no further instructions. In any case, he decided to go further with the joke. He went to build a supply store in San Jose, and he found the most expensive rock in the place. It was a Rosarita beach stone, which is a nice-sized stone, and it cost a penny. And he packed it in a box, and he showed up at the August gift show in San Francisco. A buyer from Neyman Marcus was floored by the idea. Here was this box, looked like a pet carrier, and inside was a pet rock, and it came with its whole instruction, you know, how to train your pet rock, etc. In any case, Neyman Marcus ordered 500 of these pet rocks. Gary Dahl made a tremendous press release about it, and he had sold 500 of it. Newsweek then carried the story. They did a half-page story about this nutty notion by the end of October, Gary Dahl was shipping out 10,000 pet rocks every day. He appeared on The Tonight Show twice, and by the end of that year, he had sold two and a half tons of these rocks. Three quarters of every newspaper in America had run pet rock stories, and he became an instant millionaire. Okay, now, and by the way, even today, if you'd like to bury your pet rock, you can go to a website entitled Pet Rock Sanitarium, because your pet rock deserves a noble proper, find a resting place. But here is a very important observation. I will be outlived by my pet rock. You see, a rock lasts. A a rock lasts generation after generation, year after year, for many, many millennium. But I won't. I will be outlived by my pet rock. I will not be here 50 years from now. And if I'm young... Okay, 70 years, 80 years, but it won't be that long. And when I recognize one simple cognition, that I, the great, mighty, powerful, weighty me, will no longer be here, that is the single most humbling understanding the human being can reach. You see, arrogance is delusion. It's a delusional sense. I take credit for the attribute. I am the rich guy. I am the great thing. I'm not. I was gifted with this. And the second thought that has to be there for arrogance is an object permanence. I'll always be young. I'll always be powerful. I'll always be rich. But it's a delusion. I will not always be young. I will not always be rich. And I won't always be here. My pet rock will long live after me. I won't be here. When I understand that I can enjoy the gifts that Hashem gave me, I don't have a sense of yeish. I don't have a sense of worthlessness for Kert. I have a tremendous appreciation for the gifts that Hashem gave me. And the greater those gifts, 
the more humble that I am, because the more I recognize how indebted I am, and the more I recognize how much I appreciate and how much I owe to Hashem for what Hashem has given me. So you mean I'm worthless and powerless? No. I'm Joe the crane operator, a mighty crane that can change the world, but I'm the little guy inside. That duality, recognizing my strengths, my talents, and not taking credit for it, is based on these two understandings. It's all a gift from Hashem, and it will leave me when I understand that I can use my life properly, grow, accomplish, and have a very powerful sense of humility.